This is The Other 51. I'm Brian, and this week I'm joined by Katie Barnes of ESPN. Katie, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. I've been uh, I've been an admirer of yours for a while now, reading your stuff on ESPN. So it's really I'm really excited to get to talk to you about some of the stuff you've been writing lately. Oh, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. And it's I know it's been uh, an especially big week for you professionally, given the uh, the kind of three heavyweight pieces that you all that that you had come out in one week. What's this week been like for you professionally? Um, it's been a little crazy. I won't lie. Um, you know, it wasn't originally supposed to happen this way. Okay. Um, but then of course things happened and suddenly it just all kind of landed right at the same time. Uh, so it's been really exciting, uh, but definitely a little overwhelming too. So if you don't mind me asking, if it's okay if I ask, what was the original plan and the original kind of schedule for the, for the three pieces that came out last week? Uh, well, I always knew that the Title IX story was going to land on the Title IX anniversary. That that did not change. Um, but, you know, the Maya Moore story was always a question mark. We weren't really sure when it was going to run. Sometime in late spring, early summer. That's all I knew. Um, I thought that maybe it might run in April. Uh, but then, especially with coronavirus, it just threw the sporting world out of whack. So we had sort of talked about it for beginning of WNBA season, uh, which could have been late April, early May, mid-May, in terms of like how we wanted to time our preview coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, beginning of the WNBA season, nobody knew that when that was going to be. Uh, so I'm just trying to find uh, the right slot for it, um, which is kind of an ongoing process. And then the Sue Bird and Pino interview uh, was a last-minute ad. Okay. Um, I, I figured, found out that I was doing that uh, about a week before I ended up having to do the interview. Okay. Um, well, yeah. yeah. So that's insane. Um, what was it like <laughs> juggling, especially the, uh, the Maya Moore and the title IX story? I want to get in, get in depth with a little more with the writing and reporting of all of these, but what was it kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, juggling those two and probably last minute edits and last second stuff along with, then all of a sudden, Oh, by the way, you've got to interview Sue Bird and Megan Rapinoe, uh, on the eve of the ESPY. So what was that like trying to, to work on these and juggle all of these at the same time? Uh, it was really hard, I won't lie. Um, you know, the way that it all kind of fell, I was lucky in that, um, you know, the Maya Moore story, which was the longest, uh, both in terms of reporting and also in terms of just the actual word count of the piece, um, that the heavy lifting on that story was done by the time I needed to turn my attention to the Title IX story. Um, though, because that editing process did stretch longer than I originally thought it, that it would, I found myself up against a pretty tough time crunch on the Time Online story, um, which, you know, I remember saying to my editor that I was, and because because of COVID, it just didn't end up, um, I wasn't able to report it the way that I wanted to, if that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, I had to kind of scramble and figure out what we were going to do in order to make this story work. But for me, because, you know, that, you know, Title Nine and, um, you know, queer athletes and trans athletes, that's my wheelhouse. Right. So it's not a heavy list for me to make those phone calls. So I knew exactly who I was going to have to call uh, and just hammered out the reporting probably in uh, like a week and a half. Okay. Um, and then turned around and we did three drafts in 
I want to say maybe 10 days, Wow. which for context, I did three drafts of the more story in six weeks. Wow. What what is the editing process in general like? May, not for you, and in general at ESPN. I know it'll vary obviously from piece to piece and subject matter and all that. But in general, what's the that relationship and like, and what's that process like? So on my side of the house, which we have like our daily sports coverage folks, and then we have our um, storytelling people who do more in depth featured. Um, although of course everyone does do feature writing, but for the kind of long run feature stories that I do, the editor writer relationship is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, it's funny, my direct editor also has an editing partner. And so the two of them edit together, which is a unique experience yeah. in my group. Um, and it's very interesting. Um, but, you know, I file a draft, although I often will talk to my editors, I'm someone who really likes to talk a lot about the stories that I'm working on, um, I process. So I'll just like sit and think and talk a story to death okay. until I feel like I'm ready to write. And then I will usually uh, draft really only over about two days. Um, the exception to that is a story like the Maya Moore story, which is quite long. So I took about three days to draft it. But generally speaking, I like to write in big chunks over the course of the day. Um, and so that editing process, then, you know, I file that draft and then my editors, uh, you know, they go through it and they leave and they like to do it in Google Docs. So I give them a Word doc and then I get a Google doc in return okay. with all of their notes and all of their thoughts. Um, and they have very different, they have very specific cadences of their feedback, which I think is really funny. Um and yeah, we do that until we're done. And so it's just round and round and round. And, you know, some some of those notes are reporting notes, like, can we get this? Do you have, do you have that, et cetera, et cetera. Some of it is a little bit of line editing stuff, but usually the line edit gets heavier near the end. Okay. Well, when you say you talk a story to death, um, I, I, I'm interested in that. I mean, I, I do you mean actually out loud talk it, talk about it with people with, uh, with, with other people. Is it talking in your head? Like, what does that look like? Oh, I mean, talking out loud. Okay. So, um, I often, I'm an external processor in general. Okay. So I really like to bounce things off of people. I like to say what I am thinking and I find that to be really important for me to refine what's important about a story. Okay. So um, even going back to like the story that I did about Diamond the Shield, when I landed on the lead that I did, it was because every time I was talking about it, that was what I was talking about and that was what was getting reaction. And so I was like, okay, well that scene is clearly going to be an anchor for the piece. So I'm going to lead with it. Um, You know, with my editor, Ross, we often talk structure a lot and in that as we're talking about the piece and talking about the reporting that I have and like all of that just helps me refine the ideas that I want to communicate in the piece um, and then also help me refine what that structure is going to look like especially in terms of identifying uh, those I would say certainly the lead but usually the first three sections okay yeah the uh, the 
the understanding kind of the, the external, I'm an external processor too, so I, I, I feel you on this, but also what you mentioned on the Diamond to Shield story is such an important thing I come back to with my students a lot is that if you find, whether you do it, you know, externally or internally, however you, 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 you do this, if you keep coming back to something or, you know, you tell somebody a, a nugget of information or something a source tells you or something you saw at a game and that's what you find yourself saying or that's like what stands out to you, that's in, I, I drill them that's got to be in your store story excuse me don't think of it in terms of like is this proper journalism or is this a proper lead like you know if you're if it interests you and compels you as a as you're writing it and as you're reporting it it's going to connect to your audience in the same way i think for sure i completely agree with that one of the ways i figure out what i'm going to do um is you know where like it's hard for me to identify just like sitting and thinking and being in my own head I often need that conversation with other people to sort of steer, to figure out what direction I'm internally going in. Like I said, I want to get into the three stories from this past week, but I do want to talk a little bit about your career path and kind of hear the story of, and hear how you got to ESPN and your current gig. Yeah, so it's a bit of a winding story, but I'll be as succinct as possible. <laughs> Uh, so I went to college um, in a, at a liberal arts school in Minnesota, St. Olaf College. And I majored in history, Russian studies, and American studies. And then I had a, a concentration in women and gender studies as well. And so really what I did all through college was uh, read, analyze, and write. Um, <laughs> and synthesize ideas. And so like those were the skills I developed. And while I was doing that, um, I also did a lot of activism um, within my college community and within Minnesota around LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. And so I networked with those communities. Um, and then when student, when like highly involved students uh, think about what they're going to do, they either get pushed into doing like nonprofit work or going into higher ed. Mm -hmm. And so I picked higher ed and <laughs> went and got my master's degree from Miami, Ohio in student affairs in higher education. Um, and while I was at Miami, I continued doing that LGBTQ activism work. And I and but I was doing more national um, level stuff, and so I ended up at um, the Nike Sports Summit when I was out doing my internship between grad school years in Portland, Oregon, in the summer of 2014. And so it was there that I met my mentor, and he introduced me to one of the editors of Feministing.com, and I started writing a weekly column on sports and pop culture at Feministing beginning in the winter. Well early 2015. Okay. So as I was doing that, I just came to the realization that I really didn't want to go into higher ed. I honestly thought I was going to go into comms at Nike. I was like, well, everybody keeps telling me I write well, people need words written. I can do that in communications at a corporation. Why not go to Nike? I know people there. Let's do that. And so I was starting to think about how I might make that happen. And I ended up going on a 50-state LGBT food tour as I was figuring out my life. Um, and doing communications and community development work for this organization that was putting on this food tour. And I ended up applying cold to a job at ESPN that was a digital media associate, which is a program that we no longer have, which makes it very sad. Um, but that was essentially a year-long fellowship, uh, spending time in various departments in digital media. And they took me. Um, and so I started that position in August of 2015, and it was during that time that then I met Allison Overholt, who was then uh, the editor-in-chief of ESPNW, 
and she has since added many more jobs uh, to her title. And uh, she really, she already knew who I was from my writing that I was doing at Feminist Inc. She really liked me. She told me the picture, and I did. And I knew I was going to do a rotation with W. That was one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to go to ESPN. Um, and so I started to develop those relationships, and Allison then fought a tooth and nail for eight months to hire me and hired me as a full-time writer in May of 2016, and I've been writing ever since. So um, uh, really quick, I'm sorry this is a stupid question, but I have to ask. Going to St. Olaf College, I have heard of it from my Agate, Pages, Agate Page days. Um, were there uh, were there Golden Girls jokes of, of plenty there, or are they just kind of, you guys just kind of sick of them? Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a part of like an urban legend where, um, you know, especially because, the, you know, the character in Golden Girls, too, is from St. Olaf, is often portrayed as, like, you know, being dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, a lot of those jokes are like, oh, St. Olaf. And so it's funny because Carlton is the other school that's in town in Northfield, Minnesota. And on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Carlton is stuck <laughs> up and aloof. And so we joke that it's the TV wars between the two schools. Um, so, but that's really the extent of it. I hear the, you know, Golden Girls jokes from people that don't go to St. Olaf. Right. But we, on, like, there's always a campaign to get Betty White to be our <laughs> um, commencement speaker. And we love Betty White as a, because of that character. But um, that was pretty much the extent of it. So you you mentioned, too, that your, your kind of background is in activism and in and I'm wondering, that's very, I want to say unique, but that's not a normal route in, into journalism, especially sports journalism. How does that background and that experience, how does that influence you in terms of subject material, reporting, writing, thinking, kind of how does that, that background influence your sports writing? Um, I think it's, you know, all over my sports writing, just from the kind of subject matter that I like to pursue. So because I'm not a traditional sport writer um, and I have a real interest in like law and policy um, and then, of course, bring a level of LGBTQ competency that is just not present in sports writing Mm -hmm. um, beyond a few people. You know, I think for me, it's really enhanced my career. It's something that's unique that I bring to the table. Plus, that was, you know, the primary sourcing that I came with that was different. So, you know, any sport writer uh, can... Like anyone in college, for example, like Calvary's colleges can call the NCAA and get their opinion about um, HB2 when it was passing in, you know, 2016. But like not everybody has the sourcing on the other side of things when it came to who was actually doing the organizing work with the NCAA and knowing how that was even happening and what systems were being set up to do that. And that's something that I had. Um, And so for me, in terms of subject matter, in terms of sourcing, it's everything uh, in terms of really the foundation of my career and the types of stories that I like to pursue. It's why I write about Title IX, um, both as someone who is very familiar with a lot of the topics that are being argued in courts about transgender athletes, but also as somebody who's familiar with Title IX and um, many in as many facets as uh, a piece of law um, and policy, uh, both in terms of sport, but also, of course, on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding how college campuses work because of my background in higher ed administration. Sure. So all of that together, like, really informs me as a journalist, and I think it's a pretty unique combination, and it's one of the reasons why I've been able to be as successful as I have been. 
So that's a a good lead into the Title IX story uh, from that you wrote last week on Terry Miller and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Andrea Yearwood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, Andrea. Okay, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful story on on uh, transgender athletes um, and kind of the what the future of Title IX and the future of women's sports. Um, I'm curious for how did you land on this particular story for your title for for this year's Title IX piece? So I two years ago I published a piece on on Mac Beggs and Andrea Yearwood um, that was a real examination about kind of what was to come for high school transgender athletes. It was my very first piece that went to ESPN, the magazine. It was my first big feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent about two years reporting it from the time that I started at ESPN pretty much uh, to when it published in May 2018. And I had been looking, and as soon as I published it, like the stuff that happened with Andrea <laughs> just went to a whole other level. Right. And I have been looking for a way to go back um, and a reason to revisit Andrea's story in particular. And so I saw the writing on the wall last summer with the filing of the Title IX complaint, and I felt that that was my way back in. And so I pitched it as a follow-up to that original story, but anchored in Title IX. Um, And so it was different and a different look at it, and it felt really prescient. Um, And of course, it was undercovered. So that was why I decided to do it that way. So, I mean, did you know right from the start? I mean, one of the interesting things about this story is that it making that leap from just kind of like this, these, uh, these particular runners and their story to this bigger issue of kind of like defining the future of women's sports. Um, did you know right away that that was that that was the story, or did that kind of come out in the reporting of it? Um, I mean, I think for transgender athletes especially trans women, like th- that is always the story. Okay. Um, in terms of like who is allowed to consider themselves to be a woman. And I think for people that cover gender and sport, that continues to be an issue, whether we're talking about Castor Semenya, which, you know, who is um, somebody who is not trans, um, but is targeted for, um, you know, how she looks uh, for her genetic makeup, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or we're talking about high school, trans girls. And I am someone who has continued to follow a lot of those stories. And I'm always thinking about those things. Um, And so I sort of wait and pick my spot uh, for how I can package these ideas in a way that will allow me to pursue them in the types of storytelling that I want to do. Okay. Um, As opposed to, I mean, I just, I like getting my pitches greenlit, essentially. Of it, so I kind of wait so I can package it for my editor. So all they have to do is say yes. Um, and this was a story that was like that. It was in our backyard. It was really easy for me to do, uh, even though it ended up timing-wise uh, nearly killing me. But it was, it's not, it was not a heavy, heavy lift because I already had the sourcing. I already had the relationships um, in order to make it work. Sure. And one of the uh, the things that I I was drawn to the story about was the way you structured it and kind of going in sections and you divided it up. You have parts of describing the races in italics and b- kind of going back and forth throughout the piece between the ra- between details of a race and then kind of background, bigger picture stuff, back and forth, back and forth. How did you decide on that? How'd that come about? Uh, well, I had very limited options for scene. Okay. So... Um, because of how the reporting played out. Like, originally, I wanted to do this big 
um, portrait-driven story of, you know, the, not just Andrea and Terry, but also Selena and um, Chelsea and Alana, and really spend time with all of those characters and have just all kinds of scene with them. And that could not happen because COVID. So right. thankfully, <laughs> I had been at the championships to get a scene in color anyway. Okay. And that was all I ended up having. It was all I had to go with. I ended up getting like 15 minutes with Chelsea Mitchell and Alana Smith. And like, I had really a relationship with Andrea and I got a little bit of time with her, but that was about all I could do. And so from a structure perspective, it just kind of made sense. Um, and then it also sort of mirrored, I think the structure that, uh, you, that you see in the Maya Moore story, which is very similar in terms of going from scene to context to scene to context. Right. And, when I think when you're dealing with uh, a story that is so layered and so multifaceted, uh, it makes the most sense to do it that way and, and not interrupt the scene. Right. Um, which is something that I think people do is like, you know, they'll start a section with the scene and then they'll go into all the context in the scene. And then they'll come out of it at the end. Right. Um, which is fine. But I think in the, given how little I had, um, you know, I think we really just wanted, you know, those 300 word sections to kind of stand on their own. Right. And I and, and I found that that makes can make writing it a little bit easier too. like if you're dividing it into scenes and sections like that, rather than, you know, try to figure out a transition or try to figure out how to weave that you actually, you know, do the line break or do a, 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 an entire section on it. It's easier to read, I think, from a, for readers, but it's also kind of easier to kind of help you write and kind of get through and organize a piece as you're going on it. Oh, yeah. Way easier to write. <laughs> so tell me about the Maya Moore story. I mean, it's a wonderful piece. It's a the story that not only that you write, but Maya Moore's story is just so incredible. Um, and so I mean, the, the comparison I think you made in the piece was to Michael Jordan retiring early. But instead of going to play baseball, he go he tries to uh, get a wrongly convicted man uh, freed from jail which is insane. Um, how did, so tell me about kind of how you got onto the story and how you landed, started, landed it and started writing it. So I had been interested in really religion and sport uh, was where we started this conversation. Mm. I had been eyeing a high school piece, a college piece, and then with Maya stepping away from the game in February of 2018, a Maya story. And we didn't know what that story was going to be at the time. Um, because all we knew was that she was stepping away from ministry. So I really thought that like she was going to be preaching somewhere and I was going to go to Maya Moore's church. Like that was honestly what I was thinking was going to be happening in March, April of 2018. when We were starting to have these, well, I guess 2019, we were starting to have these conversations. And then in July, Kurt Streeter comes out with a piece uh, with the New York Times that talks about how Maya was, you know, freeing, looking to free Jonathan Irons. And I was like, oh, that's what she's doing. Okay. So we figured out when the hearing was, and I got on a plane and went to Missouri and just kind of surprised her at the hearing. And we thought it was going to be the evidentiary hearing. It was not. It was like a five-minute council status hearing. I had no idea what I was doing because I am not a court reporter. And I was just like wandering around the courthouse trying to figure out where it was going to be and who was going to be there. I had no idea if Maya was going to be there and I was preparing to call my editor to be like, we just wasted like $1,200, <laughs> but it ended up being okay. 
she was there. So we had a conversation. I pitched her the story and she was like, talk to my agent. And I was like, okay. Um, and from there, I just kept going back to Missouri. Um, so I just continued to go every single hearing. It didn't matter if it was the big evidentiary hearing that um, was in the piece in October or if it was like the five minute, um, you know, status updates hearings. I went to every single one, including one in January with, that Maya didn't go to because she was getting honored in Connecticut. And I went to the hearing in the morning and caught a direct flight out of St. Louis back to Hartford and made it in time for halftime of the UConn USA basketball game and her press conference. It was wild. That's insane. And uh, yeah, it was nuts. And so that's what I did. And, you know, one thing that I don't think is clear in the piece is that I actually never did um, do a full sit down interview with Maya. I was going to, I was going to ask that. Sorry to interrupt. Because I noticed, um, and this, I, I'm sure I just noticed because I teach this stuff and used to do it, but a lot of the interviews seem to be, of Maya, seem to be from Dan Levitard from other pieces. And I was going to ask if you had talked to her. Uh, no, I mean, I did speak with her. Sure. And, you know, she knew I was there and she did not make it hard for me in terms of reporting at the courthouse. Like, I was very, like, enmeshed with her people. Like, I knew all those people around her. I ended up not interviewing any of them for the story. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, I was able to just kind of be a part of what was happening from her perspective and her people's perspective. And that was very helpful and informative for the story. But and I probably asked her maybe four questions total for the piece um, directly at either press conferences after um, a hearing or just, you know, in leaving a hearing, I might get a couple of answers. But in general, uh, that was pretty much it. And everything else was pulled from calls, uh, like press calls that happened outside of Jefferson City or, um, you know, quotes that she gave to other outlets and other uh, mediums. I mean, and that's fascinating to think that you wrote this long piece without really direct interviews with Maya or with with, with her team. I mean, th- th- that's a challenge, but also kind of how did did you use it, it feels like did you use to what did you do to kind of like turn that that's a liability, but turn it into an advantage in how you write and report and kind of get around not get around that. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but kind of like working within that that kind of constraint that you had. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what ma- what allowed me to do it was the scene I had at Jefferson City. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to just be in the courtroom and share everything that I was seeing and all that um, upfront stuff with Maya, I think that that was really helpful in terms of grounding the piece and anchoring that part of the story. And then from there, you know, it was all about getting the people around her. So I got Gino. I got Reeve, I got Lindsay Whalen, I got Rebecca Brunson. Um, and those were really important interviews for me to have. And then, you know, it was about widening the circle even larger. Um, and <laughs> that was a challenge in terms of, uh, you know, trying to get her pastor, trying to get, um, you know, anyone to talk about, you know, her religious um, identity and her faith in that way. Um you know, and so getting her high school coach, getting her high school teammates, like there's so many voices that, and people that I interviewed that were not actually in the piece. Um, and so it was just all about that, just keep pulling thread and keep, um, you know, getting as both close to Maya and also as far away from her as I possibly could. And then also reporting out Jonathan's story 
Um, and so, you know, getting his lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, I think all of that really made the piece happen. Right. Um, and then, so uh, like we said at the top, on top of that, you're thrown into interviewing uh, Megan Rapinoe and Sue Bird right before the right before the ESPYs. Normal weeks, normal weeks work. Um, kind of what I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful interview. They're 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 so awesome. But um, and again, in terms of structure, it's published as a Q&A where it's your question mm-hmm. and then their paragraphs. So what, why that instead of like a story about them? Um, I think part of it was just timing. Okay. And then uh, for story, you know, I would want to be able to interview all kinds of people around them, but we just didn't have that much time. Sure. If that makes sense. And so a Q and A just makes it really easy to format and to get up on the site. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hard part is just transcribing. Right. Any tips on that? Because transcribing's the wor- it's the worst, right? Uh, it's terrible. <laughs> Uh, so, um, I ask everybody I have on the podcast this, so I want to ask you, what is the best thing that you've read lately? Oh, the best thing I've read lately? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just reread, um, the David Graham's A Murder Foretold, and that's like my favorite story. Okay. So that's the best thing I've read lately. What about that, uh, connects with you? Why is that? It's um, it's just like such a brilliant piece of journalism in terms of storytelling and the way that he employs detail, um, and the way that he structures something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing piece of work. All right, well, Katie, this has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you taking the time with me this week. Awesome, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Other 51. Show notes for this and all of our episodes can be found at sportsmediaguide.com by clicking on The Other 51 tab. If you like the show, please consider giving it a rating and a review, either at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz.